You are listening to the Enormo Cast. So, Tradsters, tell me who loves you more than Black Diamond. Wait, your mom? Give me a break. She may be good for a warm meal and an emergency check when the Sprinter Turbo shits the bed. But when did your mom ever reduce your rack weight by 30% with a still futuristic cam like the Ultralight Camelot? In the last five years, Black Diamond has refined and redesigned their cams over and over to give you the best protection money can buy. And now, guess what? They took the venerable C3 and X4 and replaced them with the Z4. Wait, what? Just listen. The likes of Hazel Finley and Carla Traversi helped with these from the ground up. Get it? And then Hazel sent Magic Line just to prove their worth. So are they only good for 514? Of course not. They're good whenever you need a low-profile, hard-sticking cam that won't wobble around in your hand like a slippery hot dog when you pull the trigger. So go to BlackDiamondEquipment.com or your favorite local shop to check out the Z4, the latest in a continuing tradition of cam refinement from the climber engineers at Black Diamond. Tell them your mom sent you. Look, folks. You've been hitting that hangboard like a swole gibbon, doing repeaters until your veins twist into ridiculous words like venga. Your homemade wall is splintered and worn with your thrice daily prostations. But what if, just maybe, power, endurance, and power endurance, whatever that is, isn't actually what's holding you back. In fact, it's your lousy footwork after all. That's where Sportiva comes in. Sportiva has the best line of climbing shoes in the world for when you stop hanging around and actually have to climb something. From legends like the Mira and Squama to new standards like the Solution Comp. And don't forget the TC Pro, the only shoe to free solo L cap. Remember that? So when the hangboard is once again cobwebbed over, or just that place you stash your one hitter, do what you've always done and stand on your feet with Sportiva. Check it all out at Sportiva.com or as soon as your local shop is open and ready for your business, rush right down there and give them some money. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment. With support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the EnormaCast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Galoos. It is June 16th, 2020, or as I like to say, PCV0. 
and this is episode 200 of the Enormacast. Yes, the Royal We has made it to 200. Is the number 200 important? Not really, but feels good considering I started this thing while living in a cabin with no internet about 10 years ago. And my hasty calculations tell me that I'm only off the mark, the two-a-month mark, by four episodes in almost 10 years, month after month after month, which really just tells me that I need to get a life, and I'm probably a loser. Anyway, in the meantime, in those 10 years, what else did I do? I also bought or sold two houses. I had two long-term serious relationships. One is in its seventh year right now, I think. It's seven. I had a kid who's now four and a half. I climbed a shit ton. And I also lost some dear friends to the mountains, one of whom was instrumental in the show taking off, I think. And that, of course, was our friend and my hero, Hayden Kennedy. And now, what's going on now? Well, we're witnessing a historic pandemic and uh, historic protests and historic unrest in the nation. But also, over the last few years, historic growth in media attention to climbing. But I don't know. Would the guy who had to drive seven miles in the middle of the night to sit outside the library like some creeper to post a show, would he have predicted that I'd still be banging the shit out a decade later? I doubt it. But moving into a house with internet helped a lot. So episode 200. Mmm. Feels good. Okay, that's it. I'm out. Thanks for the memories, Mother Lickers. That guy at the Nugget, he's got the fire now. You should go check him out. Because I'm done. No. I can't quit, you guys. Seriously, I can't quit. You don't know what they have on me. So, 200. I was sort of planning, podcast air quotes, something special for the 200th app. I had some ideas. I had, you know, I was talking to some people. But like all things in normal, I put it off and put it off. And February rolled up and I was like, ah, that's not till June. I got plenty of, oh, hello, pandemic. And, you know, all 200 episodes face to face. Trying to keep that faith, even in a pandemic. All y'all forced into video conferencing in the last few months know why talking on the internet totally blows. But luckily, I have just a thing in the hopper for today. A message of love and resilience from the one and only Timmy O'Neill, recorded back in January. That's right, Timmy O. That guy was made for podcasting. But first, shall we address the Black Lives Matter movement? and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tamir Rice, and so many other murders. And maybe let's get into diversity in climbing and the lack of on the Enorma cast. Yeah, let's do it. And for once, I might have written some of this next bit out ahead of time. And if you came for the climbing and want to keep your politics separate, I respect that. I totally do. I just can't do it right now. Not this time. So... Start banging that plus 30 button until you hear Timmy, then go back one. It's that simple. Shit, most of you guys have been doing that for years, I bet. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, or should I do that thing where I pop back from the future and tell you where to go to to skip all this? I could try that too. Hello. Hello. It's Chris from the future. 
If you want to skip the politics and get right to the interview, go to 13 minutes and 45 seconds. Yes, I do go on a little bit. See you then. All right, are we alone now? The climbing community is highly educated and has high values, or so I'd like to believe. So of course we believe that black lives matter. Of course we see the institutionalized racism all around us. Because if you're smart and pay attention, the fact that there are two sets of rules for black and white is as obvious as El Cap when you pop through the Wawona Tunnel. And speaking of Yosemite, even the MPS has a cruel history of racism which still reverberates. But I think we also want to believe that climbing is apolitical to a certain extent. Or at least a place to get away from divisive ideas and heavy thoughts. Free your mind and all that. Shut your phone off, ditch the news, social media, and just go climbing. But the protests, the brutal videos, and the creeping racism we are seeing all around us can't be left at the trailhead. One might ask, well, why weren't you so worried about this last year or the year before? This shit's 400 years old at least. Well, because people need a jolt from the status quo. That's how history can change on a dime. It's pretty much the only way, actually. The climbing community, especially the outdoor climbing community, is still overwhelmingly white, comparably affluent, and kind of prone to mythical thinking about the elevation of climbing. I am at least prone to that gauzy outlook. It's, it's pretty much my whole brand. You know, we're good people. Just get some shoes. Come climbing. Nobody judges. Well, it turns out that if you talk to people of color in the climbing community, we do judge. We do single them out, and we do stop and stare. And since climbing is open to everybody, that everybody also includes some, very few I hope, outright racist scumbags. But even now, I think that the overall climbing community is good, compassionate, and prepared to take on this moment, which is why I'm encouraged by the conversations happening in the climbing space out there. Climbing needs more diversity, more diverse voices, but they're growing in number and volume. In the 30 years I've been climbing, the gender balance has nearly equalized from a total imbalance towards men. This tells me that true diversity is also possible. And the truth is that diversity in climbing is growing as we speak, thanks in large part to gyms, gleefully making pad sniffers out of anybody that walks through the door. From conversations I've been having, diverse climbers see a need for role models, industry representatives, and normalizing of their place in climbing. All of this is supremely possible with time and pressure. Almost inevitable, I think. And thankfully, in the 30 years I've been climbing, I've heard nothing yet of violence and bald-faced racist attacks between actual climbers. I know that's a low bar, but it puts climbing above a lot of other communities. But of course, I can't know everyone's experience. So perhaps these types of incidents exist? Am I naive in not being able to fathom something akin to the violence of white supremacists between climbers at my local crag? Are climbers being forced to intervene in race-based violence by other users in parks and at the cliffs? or worse, turning away from intervening? It's likely that I am, in fact, naive. Tell me if I am. But as the Murrow quote sort of goes, we are not descended from fearful people. We are climbers, after all. We believe in honesty, challenge, spirit, courage. So I would hope we have the courage to confront this age with compassion and reason and put aside ingrained personal beliefs and dogma to empathize with the plights of others on a truly humanistic level. Smart people like us can fall into a pit of righteousness that makes us dismissive of the needs of those with a different experience.
It's a trap where you think you're so right that no information can break through. So my plea is, as it's always been, that we open our minds and welcome other good people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, outlooks, manners, and skin color to our sport, even the golfers. I would also hope that if we as individuals see, hear, or smell racist shit in the community or at the local crags, we have the huevos to stand up and back up anyone in need of support. I know we tend to be lovers, not fighters, or at least shit talkers, not fighters, but courage can have a cost, yet cowardice has a much higher toll. So you might be saying, Chris, well, why the hell is the Enormacast so fucking white? Well, my friends, I have no agenda at the Enormacast. And I mean that literally and figuratively, as in there is no plan. Very little premeditated anything happens at the Enormacast. When it comes to interviews, half the time I just grasp at whoever is in front of me when the end of the month rolls around and I'm desperate. In fact, in the last few years, as I've attained worldwide fame thanks mostly to Alex Honnold, I've gotten kind of lazy and let folks reach out to me as much as reaching out to them. I've been concerned and active around seeking out women guests, but as for actively looking at diversity, I'll admit that I hadn't given it much thought before now. I have a very long list of potential guests, many suggested by you guys over the years, my own thoughts, my own reading, my own whims, and I just kind of like keep an eye out for when they're available, and I really rarely chase after them too hard. And I have reached out to some black climbers over the years, but for mostly logistical reasons, the interviews didn't go down, including being blown off by Kai Leitner to go climbing and rifle with Hayden Kennedy. Can't say I blame the kid. At this point, I'd give nearly anything for the opportunity to climb with Hayden again. And frankly, I'd love to have Kai on the show. And maybe he remembers that day and can tell us about climbing with HK. So all I can say is that I'll keep the mics open to all the opportunities to interview diverse guests. And we can talk about race if they want to. Or we can talk about climbing. Or whatever comes up. No agenda. So the hip thing to say right now is that climbing doesn't matter in the face of all that is happening in the world. That it's meaningless when people are being murdered in the street. And that is true in a sense. But it's also true that you can be actively working towards justice and love climbing at the same time. And you can love our climbing community and still want to change it. And you can care about others and the world, but still want to go climbing with your friends and turn it all off once in a while. Our brains are complex and can handle all those truths at once. Like I said, we're smart, and to us, climbing is important. So on to Timmy O'Neill in episode 200. And welcome back, fast forwarders. Timmy has a glorious and deep message of love in this interview, so prepare yourselves. I will let Timmy speak for himself on that matter. However, if you haven't heard, not long after we did this interview earlier this year, incidentally, we did it on the same day as Katie Brown's interview, which was a very emotional day. I'm telling you, exhausting. Anyway, Timmy left for Patagonia a couple weeks later, and the famed normal bump backfired horribly, and Timmy suffered a stroke while he was down there. Or as his Instagram post explains, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Nothing to do with spiders. Thanks to a cadre of friends and first responders, Timmy was evac'd relatively quickly, first to facilities in Chile and then to the U.S. The internet explained to me bleakly that one-third of subarachnoid hemorrhage 
victims die. One-third survive, but with permanent disabilities, and one-third heal completely. Well, Timmy has lived a charmed life, as you'll hear in this interview, and his luck continues. As it seems, he is on his way to a full physical recovery, though the changes in his outlook on life are still working themselves out. So this interview with Timmy O'Neill is pre-coronavirus pandemic, pre-worldwide BLM protests, and in Timmy's case, pre-subarachnoid hemorrhage, a.k.a. a stroke. Man, January 2020 seems like old times, eh? I mean, I was just talking about that with Odub, how burps, oh, right. sneezes, hiccups, just spots. now. Yeah, it's like that's the original beatbox. <laughs> I was saying. So I went from mother's heartbeat to right. You know these you know sounds that you make out of that's your right. You're a beatboxer. I have beatbox. I wouldn't yeah. call myself a beatboxer, but I have beatbox. No, I think you're pretty good at it. It's like driving fast. You wouldn't yeah. call yourself a race car driver, but you can drive a car fast. <laughs> yeah. True. I don't know. Is he, he's, is he a beatboxer? Is there he's just he, a rapper? He raps, yeah, but, yeah. but he does. He can beatbox and yeah. does beatbox. Cool. Yeah. You've done it in a film. The Urban Ape. Yeah. Well, also, no, 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 no. It wasn't Urban Ape. Actually, it was, it was uh, Parallelogams. Uh, Parallelogams. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is in Return to Send. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I just had this young kid named Kyle over at the Osprey booth. He's like, in, you know, newly in the outdoor industry. He's just like, wow, this is so amazing seeing all these people. And he goes, Timmy O'Neill, I just got to tell you, like, you changed my life. Like, I got into climbing because of you. I'm like, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, it was either your, that or cure cancer, and I went with climbing. Yeah, tell your parents you. I'm sorry. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I feel the same way with this thing because, yeah, I get all these like letters about people like I'm thinking, thinking about just doing it, pulling the trigger, getting in a van, hitting the road because of the enormous cast. Yeah. I'm like, well, if you end up under a bridge, like muttering beta at a stump, like don't blame me. You know, yeah, it's like, right. <laughs> it well, wasn't then, my fault. And they need to go on road trips so they can listen to all these, you know, 200 normal cats. Exactly. Yeah. They definitely, especially, especially if they live in, you know, somewhere on the East Coast, they got to do the Yosemite drive yeah. across the country and Several catch their days asses up. Of yeah. Stoke. So, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I want to say that uh, you and I, God dang, like I met you a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Like you were at, in Telluride or down in that zone yeah. working for um Jagged Edge. Jagged Edge. The Twisted Sisters. Yeah. The yeah. the freaking um Margaret and Paula. And did like that brand's long gone, right? The brand still the brand here? name is still there. There's okay. a store called Jagged Edge. Oh, okay. But their clothing, you know, that they made that doesn't exist any longer. Loved it. Yeah, it was so cool. Yeah, it was a big town jacket. I mean, that yeah. was my entrance into the outdoor industry. Right. Like before I was a professional climber, I was a lord of retail. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was like, uh, yeah, we were uh, Nan and yeah, yes, the whole connection. Exactly. Right. Through Nan Darkus is yeah. how we met. Really. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, God damn, that must have been 30 years ago. Practically or 25. 25 years yeah, for 25, sure. 25, yeah. Yeah. So. Half of our life. Yeah. And know. it's funny because then even then it was like this trajectory of like, Oh, there's Timmy O'Neill in Yosemite now, and there he is on the Parallel Jams. And you know, you sort of kept in my life uh, in this one-sided uh, sort of relationship where I see you all the time, but you never saw me. So, but uh, but it was always always good to to run into you over the years. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
And that's actually what I've always liked about, you know, you and kind of what you have in climbing is that I never, it's like I could run into you and it was just the same as it always was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like a smile is this yeah. beautiful thing. Yeah. It's like if you feel down, smile. Yeah. And this is like walking around with like a life of a smile. Right. Yeah. And you're genuine. I mean, it was like this genuine nature that I thought I could always count on and I felt like could just re-up with this guy. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah. that, and so I'm excited to have you on. I also get requests for Timmy O'Neill on the show, like pretty darn frequently. And I think it's because they've always felt like this interface uh, is a good place for Timmy O'Neill to be in terms of putting a mic in front of you yeah. and, um, and and getting to listen to you. So well, I love um, talking for yeah. sure. And I love listening as well. Yeah. Where do you, uh, do you have a place you want to start? I have an idea. I mean, it's up to you. I mean, yeah. I, I feel, first of all, it's great to finally be on the normal cast because it's been a long time coming, right? I mean, we've been trying to make it happen. And, and that's cool too, that it's organic mm -hmm. in the way that, you know, we finally come together and we're at the same place at the right time mm -hmm. and you have your setup and, and we make it happen. So thanks for, for bringing me on. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So the most recent thing, I guess, is where I thought maybe we'd start is this yeah. Ahmed Blom trip that we right. just did, mm -hmm. which was... uh I think, a, you know, it's a crossroads of a, of a sort for you with the Paradox Sports and all that sort of thing. Right. Uh, but, you know, when I kind of, like a lot of climbers that I sort of see as, you know, these fun in the sun rock climber type dudes, um, all of a sudden going to climb a big mountain. I was like, whoa, all right. And I, I didn't know and still don't know. Maybe you can tell me if that's an experience uh, that you've had before, or if that's in your wheelhouse or was it? Was it something new to you as well? So can you talk a little bit about that expedition and we'll, we'll kind of start there? Yeah, I mean, with the Ahmed Ablam trip, that was, you know, a few months ago in November, basically. And Eric Weinmayer is a great friend and he's a climber and a kayaker and an adventurer and he happens to be blind. You know? Right. He went blind when he was 12. Right. You know, 100% lights out, no light perception. And we started hanging out and climbing and, and, and adventuring together, you know, over 10 years ago. And we'd be doing these trips. And, you know, so Eric invited me on a trip to, to climb Amand Blanc with him. And it's a peak that I'd seen before because I went over and did the Kumbu Climbing School in 2006. Okay. You know, the Alex Lowe Charitable Foundation. And, and then I was over in Nepal a second time in 2012 when I went and did an ophthalmic tech course, right? I became an IDOC assistant and took a 90-day course and lived in Kathmandu and went up into the mountains again to do an outreach and so I had a, another opportunity to go back to a place that I have a past with and really enjoy because the mountain culture there is deep, right? People have been living up in those mountains for centuries and centuries. And, and so to go with Eric and to guide Eric on Alma de Blom is a challenge, right? Because you have to be his eyes, um, of course, and then you also have to be his, in a way, you have to describe something and become part of his imagination, Right. So there's, there's a lot of exchange that's ha that happens there. And as far as my experience in the mountains past, like big mountains, mm -hmm. I've done some mountaineering, like with Nan, you know, speaking of Telluride, we went down to Ecuador years ago and I did like those the volcanoes down right. there and they're higher altitude, 5,000 meters. And this one's, you know, Alma de Blam is a bit taller. It's like 6,800 mm -hmm. on you know, 12 meters. So just under 7,000 meters. So it's big, right? It's, it's serious. So yeah, tell us about the trip then, you know, and, and 
the experiences. Eric's been on the show actually. We I did a show with the, him a few years ago. Um, so he's in the he's in the enormous cast pantheon. I mean, he's um, he's amazing. He's really funny. He's very smart, and, and he is this guy that you know, like true vision isn't seeing the thing in front of you; it's imagining it, right? So for him, he's got this incredible vision, right, where he's imagining the world that he's in, and you know, he helped start this thing called No Barriers. It's a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you talked about it on the show. And they have this great tagline that what's within you is stronger than what's in your way. So Eric is, as I mentioned, smart. So he brings really good people around him to help share in his vision. So I got an invitation along with uh, Charlie Mace, who went with Eric to the top of Mount Everest and has been on many of Eric's trips. And Mm -hmm. Eric joins Charlie on his trips. And then a guy named Eric Alexander also came along who was with Eric on Everest. And then a younger guide. Um, and we, um, all went over to the mountain together and it was really like this, you know, walking and eating trip, like more than anything, like you spend, (laughs) you know, this, this long time hanging out with each other and you're, you're eating, you're walking, you know, you're spending all this time at these tea houses and then you're acclimatizing as well. Right. So have you been over to Nepal? Have you no, been to the Himalaya? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mountains are of course incredible, right? There's like these 6,000, 7,000 meter peaks everywhere. And then where Amitabhlam sits, there's four, 8,000 meter peaks right around it, you know, of the 14, 8,000 meter peaks. And of course, Everest being the tallest is right there. So we spent uh, several weeks uh, you know, approximating uh, Amitabhlam and, and then doing these sub peaks. We did uh, Chukung Ri, which is kind of kind of like a hill, like 5,400 meters. And then we did a second one called Lobuche East. And that was um, about 6,000 meters, just over 6,000 meters. And then we went over to Amitabhlam to climb it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And were you guys successful? We were. We were successful in climbing the peak. And we, it took us multiple days to climb it, right? right. Like we, you know, Eric wanted a little bit more time because uh, acclimatizing once again is going to be the key to success. Like making sure that your body is acclimated to the altitude and you're able to oxygenate and, you know, basically be strong enough to do this huge undertaking. Right. And so we spent a night at Yak Camp and then two nights at Camp One, a night at Camp Two, a night at Camp 2.7, which Camp Three got taken out by the Deblom, which is this like hanging glacier. And a few years ago, uh, I forget how many years, but a number of years ago, it came down and killed um, sh- some Sherpa and some Western clients. So you camp now at a, at a safer location, mm-hmm. just down and around the corner. And we spent another night there. Then we went to the summit. Then we came down to camp two to spend the night and then down to, to base camp. How'd you feel like your performance was? Well, fortunately I didn't get sick. Nice. I actually put on weight, which is really uncommon. Yeah. yeah, Like I said, it was an eating trip. We ate so much. I mean, like, you know, you have, you know, this like Dalbot, you know, the Sherpas say Dalbot power 24 hour, Mm. no shower, no problem. Right. Like, so so I was able to eat a lot. I, I stayed really healthy. I didn't get really the kumbu cough. I didn't get dysentery. Um, Joseph Hobby, who was with us, I mentioned he's a guy out of Salt Lake City. He unfortunately was like on the cusp of acute mountain sickness. He wound up cracking a rib by coughing so hard. Oh, jeez. Whooping cough. Like, you know, these 
complications that really he had to leave. He, he got up to camp one and then had to depart back to the States. Like he helicopter ride out of base camp and back to Kathmandu, you know, medical care and then ongoing medical care back in the States. So it can deliver you right. know, a huge setback or like a shocking, you know, failure in some cases. Cause we're like, Joseph Hobby, this is going to be great. And like, he's a young guy who's going to be like a, our stem cell injection. And he wound up being like a stem cell rejection, right? <laughs> like it, and so, but it's just a lesson that no matter how strong and, and youthful you may be, altitude sickness doesn't discriminate. You could be, you know, young or you could be old and you could suffer from it. Right. So I wound up not taking Diamox either, which is, you know, a drug that you take to help oxygenate and help you deal with the effects mm -hmm. of altitude sickness. And I mean, I felt so good that I wound up being Eric's principal guide on the mountain because he's strong. He, he got somewhat ill, but he's just so strong. And his mental fortitude is so strong. Like he, because to, when you're blind, you can't see the terrain. So you're always ready for a stumble. Right. So you're kind of always tensed a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're, you have this sort of cognitive dissonance because you can't see it and you're needing to imagine it. And then he's needing to listen to me in case I, I, I'm the guide, right? And then, you know, do what it is I'm suggesting, but it doesn't go out, right? I mean, I've heard it described like when working with Lonnie Bedwell, who's a blind kayaker that Lonnie is like a remote control car that you're trying to control, but it's not behaving properly. Right. It's like a glitch in the system, right? right. Like the radar is not picking it up, the radio frequency right. rather. So with Eric, I wound up being his principal guide from camp two to the summit and then back down again. Mm -hmm. And you're talking the entire time, right? And you're, and you're not only just talking and trying to describe it, but you're also providing like that impetus and like the good job and like let's going and you know just really firing up the process so it was it was taxing dude it was amazing like when i got to the summit finally we all got to the summit and i was so drained like emotionally and and just physically that i wept i wound up like weeping like tears of joy mm -hmm. for sure it's like oh god it's over right? right like we now you know it's on easy street now now it's about descending right, right. and that even then you know you know the two other guys that were with us weren't able to sort of step up because they were so tired and they were dealing with illness and like right. it's punishing over there dude so we descend all the way and you know I, I talked to Pemba Sherpa. I'm like, Pemba, here's the deal. Eric needs you to bring him back down to camp 2.7. I'll be down there waiting, you know, because I was like, I can't do any more. Like I'm going right. to break. And, and the mountain is filled with people. This Lobouche East mm -hmm. and Island Peak, they're the trekking peaks. But now it's kind of turning over to Amand Blom, right? It's like sort of shifting like the level of of the client that right. rocks up to Kathmandu and goes into an agency and they're like, cool, you want to climb Amand Blom? The most beautiful mountain in the world, considered to be, right? With the most beautiful view in the world, you know, because you have all of these peaks all around you. And now there are people that are going up. So we saw some crazy shit on Amand Blom as far as bad clients and not great uh, results. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was heavy, really. You know, how was Eric like after it was all said and done? Like, I did, mean, he, did it drain him the way it sort of kicked everybody else's ass or did he, you know? Yeah, for sure. Right. I mean, more so, right? Because he's dealing with having the, the physical nature of not being able to see it and getting, it's like getting ready to be, you know, blindsided. 
and sucker punched by something. You're on edge, right? right? And that physically and, and mentally exacts a toll, which is unusual. And it's really hard to understand. Right. Like when you're blind, you don't have circadian rhythm, which means you can't perceive light. So you never know when it's time to go to bed or when it's time to wake up. And so that means you could be asleep or awake at any moment, i.e. your sleep cycle sucks. And right. it's really difficult. Another problem is if you hear a sound, like right now, there's like a little sound of a fridge in the background. That sound, you obsess on it and it could become something that drives you kind of crazy. So you need to put book on tape in right. your ears so you can have a break of a monotonous sound or right. like being on the edge of a river. I've done a bunch of blind kayaking and the rapid creates this roar ah, that drives a person with blindness kind of crazy because they obsess on it. So there's other factors that we're not even aware of right. that are really exacting a toll that are making you exhausted. And so we got back First of all, we got up to camp 2.7 and he's like, that's the hardest day I've ever had in the mountains. And this guy has climbed all over the world. He's climbed Everest. He ice climbed Losar, that like several thousand foot ice climb. Right. He's been to the Bugaboos. With Rob, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. With Rob Raker. Yeah. He's been to the Bugaboos with me. He's He's been all over the world climbing the iconic formations and mountains of the world. Mm -hmm. And we get to camp 2.7. He goes, that was the hardest day I've ever had in the mountains. Like that was the most difficult terrain I've ever experienced. And we get back down to camp two after summoning, you know, and the next day we're back and he goes, that's the craziest experience I've ever had. He's like, that's the hardest I've had to work. That's the most uncertain the terrain has been. And it was the most taxed I've ever felt. He goes, why would you do something like this? Why would you bring a blind guy up a mountain like that to experience terrain like that? And my answer to him was, I had no idea it was going to be like that, dude. Right. If I would have known. I think it was my idea, Eric. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, if I would have known, dude, I probably wouldn't have gone. But right. that's the whole beauty of, you know what we get into in the right. mountains and we go because we don't know the outcome. We go because we're not really certain of, you know, the, anything from the objective hazards to the climactic hazards, you know, like weather and stuff. Mm. So we get back down to camp two and we're shattered and, and we didn't get back down to camp two until late dude. Like, cause it's all of this repelling. I saw the sketchiest anchor I've ever seen in my life. It was fixed lines and it was a single bird beak that Ooh. this rope, the single rope is, is hanging on. And that was backed up to a bad piton in really bad rock, right? And then I'm like, I can't believe this is the anchor. And hundreds and hundreds of people are jugging on this. Mm -hmm. Some with huge loads, like these Sherpa porters, right? They're bringing up huge loads. And so there's a lot that, that goes into this that, that you don't want to see as well, right? Mm -hmm. So we eventually get back down to base camp, this tea house. And we celebrate, we have a beer. They, they make like a, you know, sort of a Sherpa cake, right? And you do like a happy birthday to the summit. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to go back up. And the whole time I was on the mountain, I was thinking of a dear friend, this guy, Niels Tietze, right? And Niels died in, in 2017 of, a, of an accident in Yosemite. He, um, he repelled off of his rope, right? And, uh, um, yeah. And so Niels and I were in Kathmandu together doing this, uh, the ophthalmic tech course I mentioned, right. right? Living in Kathmandu. 
and going to the Tilgunga Institute of Ophthalmology, all because of this guy, Jeff Tate. Yeah, Jeff Tate. Amazing sure. mentor. Yeah, yeah. And just a wild. Love to have him on the show. Just actually. an incredible individual and a polymath. I mean, right. encyclopedic, you know, madness, not just learning. So I became friends with Niels, right? This is in 2012. And then flash forward five years, he becomes the third brother, sadly, to die out of this family. Right. And it's huge, ma major loss, like nothing I'll ever be able to comprehend. So when we were wait, literally, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, his brothers, he, him. Okay. yeah. So he lost two brothers before him. Right. And when I met him in 2012, we were rooming together and he actually had uh, a piece of his brother who was cremated, I imagine. Right. So we had a, a small piece of his bone right. and he handed it to me. Right. And I was like, wow, I knew what it was immediately. And I knew who who must have been, right? And, and, I, and I knew Niels and, and I met him um, a little bit, right? And he was an intense, very capable, incredibly strong in every way, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he had just like passed his entrance exams into medical school, right? Like at Flying Colors. And he was uncertain if he wanted to do it, he's gonna be like a permaculturist or... Anyway, he was like a major dreamer, but also a major achiever. So when we were on the mountain, I was thinking of him because he climbed it with Freddie Wilkinson and with Uli Steck when we were, went to that school together in 2012. So when I was on the mountain, I was going up to camp one to meet up with the guys because they were already up there, like with Joseph Hobby and Eric Alexander. They went with Eric a little early. So Charlie and I were able to chill at base camp because Eric was working with a couple of other of our guides. So I'm up by myself. I got my music in my ears and uh, my fiance Sarah made me a playlist. And so I'm listening to this song called Strong by Lon London Grammar. And dude, it hits me so hard, this deep sadness and sense of loss around Niels's death. That I had no idea. And it wound up being the day that he died in Yosemite, which I didn't know. But intuitively, I must have known. And when I was going back to climb Mamba de Blanc, I was like, I had the invitation to go with Niels, Freddie, and Uli, but I went to do this outreach instead. So I, I missed it. But I was like, the mountain will wait for me. But as it turns out, the mountain may wait, but people can't wait because sometimes they check out, right? Or inevitably we all do. And so I'm listening to this song and I begin to weep like so deep and so powerfully. And like so much is coming out of me in like such a beautiful and profound way that I'm like, I'm feeling his presence. I'm feeling the reason that I'm there, like doing this sort of exchange with Eric, who's like this deep friend and he's dealing with his blindness, right? And, you know, overcoming it in this beautifully and, and bold way. And then the next song that comes on is this like upbeat, up-tempo tune. And I like just start dancing hard and like moving and like screaming out and then, I make it up to camp one. I'm like, you guys, this thing just happened to me and I got to share it with you. So we proceed to listen to the song Strong by London Grammar. And then we listen to this next upbeat tempo song in the tent all together. Like Charlie, Eric, Alexander, Eric Weinmayer, myself. And it was like, you know, just really beautiful. And so I, when I was on the mountain, I really wanted to uh, to go back up there and do it in a fast and like clean style, like 
Uli, Freddie, and, and Niels just went like punched it and jammed up the mountain. They helped the Sherpas like fix lines on the peak because it's basically a soft via ferrata. Like there's, you know, you don't climb it. You just, you know, have a descender and you jug and stuff. So when I got back down, I talked to Eric Weimer and I'm like, hey, E, I want to go back up and do the peak. And we're leaving the next morning on helicopters. And so this is in the morning. I have like a 24-hour period where I want to go do the peak by myself. And so by 2 p.m., I got their permission like to go up there and do it. So I, I repacked my bag with all my stuff, my boots, my crampons, axe, harness, everything. I didn't leave it up there because I knew I was going to do it, but I didn't know because I didn't ask yet. And I didn't just want to do it without asking permission, right? Because I didn't want to take away from what we had just experienced for six days by like grandstanding or something, mm -hmm. right? So I left by 2 p.m. and by 2 a.m. that same day, I was on the top of the mountain by myself. And I got up there and it was totally dark, of course, but totally calm, right? It was so quiet. There's prayer flags on top that in that day before when I was up there, they were blowing. It was strong winds. It's like really, you know, atmospheric and wild. And it feels like a place you don't want to stay for very long. But when I got up there solo in the freezing dead of night, it was so quiet and so calm. And I just sat down and I actually thought I was going to have like some major, like, profound crying jag again like i just experienced so that i was like i think i cried here we myself go again. yeah i was like here we go again dude and i didn't bring kleenexes again and i was gonna have these like little Frozen. tear sickles hang off my cheeks maybe or like crying little ice cubes out of my eyeballs dude i'd make a little mini gin and tonic up there out of a thimble but but what happened instead was absolute exhaustion like sheer unmitigated empty tank right so i stand up and i look around and you know there's like choi yu and everest and lotse and makalu and pumori like have you seen that peak it's like mm -hmm. this incredible architecture right and no wonder we want to make buildings that represent this right and what it what i realize is when i'm up there is like i can't see any of it i can't see any of the world's most beautiful view of mountains and it strikes me that this is exactly what eric sees on the top of every mountain is nothing right so it really begs the question of why go when what drives us to go is seeing the view from the summit and people often ask eric they're like why would you bother going because first of all you're blind and it's it's extra dangerous but secondly you can't even see it so it strikes me as a reason to contemplate why it is we do the things we do mm -hmm. like for whom do we do it you know whether it's to, to snap a pick for social media or to snap a pic with our eyes phone, right? So we can register that in, in our bucket list. Or is it so we can perceive the world that we're a part of in another beautiful way, right? And I think so when, when I climb with people with disabilities, it's always having this new conversation about a topic that allows me to reconsider it in a new way. Right. So was your... Uh I don't know if I want to call it your sort of gateway into this. Was it your brother? Yeah. Yeah. My brother, Sean. Right. His paralysis mm -hmm. was my entrance into the adaptive world. Right. A world of adaptation. Right. Right. Yeah. What are some of the adventures you've sort of, you've had with him? I mean, right away, you know, Sean 
became paralyzed in, in a leap off of a bridge, like young men do. Right. We, we yeah, do I dangerous mean, things. A, like a, yeah, I mean, it's like the the boys in particular are so um, like statistically prone to just jacking themselves up with crazy accidents when they're a certain age. Yeah, and and I'm one of seven kids, right? Susan, Sean, Kimberly, Kevin, Timmy, Tommy, Billy, right? So there wasn't a welcome month. Welcome to America. I know. Welcome to Irish, <laughs> like Irish Catholic Irish America, Catholic right? And then there were seven kids in my family, seven kids next door, <laughs> seven kids next door. It was like a rabbit warren, dude. It was like, and they were doing it like rabbits. In Philly, right? In yeah, Philly, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're part of like this like climbing Philly mafia that I've, I've, I'm friends with several of these people, I feel like. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I didn't find climbing until after I, I left Philadelphia. Oh, really? And I never went back oh, to okay. Philly. I mean, except for to visit. But, yeah. but Sean's injury was this grand awakening for me of, you know, epic catastrophe. I remember I wrote uh, Brad Lynch a, a note about this and he, he showed me the note not too long ago. And I said, life has thrown a rock at me and smashed me in my eye. Like it, like it, it took a part of my ability to see the world. Like it took mm -hmm. a dimensionality away from my life because you think of paralysis and you think of your life is over. Right. And this is the, the interesting thing about this is your former life may be over, but your new life has just begun, right? Like through that crisis comes this opportunity to redefine, to reinvigorate, to re-envision. And so part of that process for Sean was me inviting him into my life to become a climber. He wasn't a climber before his accident. So climbing actually became after he lost the use of his legs he then became a climber. So our, our first climb we did was Devil's Tower in Wyoming. Okay. Yeah, we went out, we drove across country and we went out from Philly. I was home and I'm like, dude, let's go climb Devil's Tower. He's like, what's that? I'm like, Demer, dun, 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 dun. Close encounters from the third kind, right? They have that, the, that, the rock formations in there. And we went out there and we built all our own equipment. Of course, Mark Wellman, the early you know, paraplegic climber, sit climber, uh, climbed El Cap and Half Dome and was you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. He was that first one who really set the way forward mm -hmm. um, by doing those and embodying that overcoming adversity mindset. So we climbed Devil's Tower. We climbed Castleton Tower. Uh, we climbed uh, the Tombstone on King Creek Road. Uh, we climbed El Cap a few times. You know, he's had some failures as well. We failed on Half Dome together. He's failed on El Cap two other times. So have I. Yeah, right. Yeah, so we could, you and Sean can have a lot in common then. Right. Failing on El Capitan, dude. Right. Failing or bailing. Right. You know, if you're not failing or bailing, perhaps you're not trying hard enough. Exactly. Or, or yeah. too audacious of goals, maybe. Sure. Yeah. Oh, and was he game like right away? Is this he what, what kind of person is he? He's a deep thinker. He, he has yeah. a very esoteric mind. He's a sculptor, and he went from sculpting metal to now he sculpts. Uh, like concepts really like he was doing math he does deep computational math he does this colorated math poetry he's amazing i mean like check him out like wait 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 if you check he him does out what now i call i call it colorated <laughs> math poetry you just said that like as if it was like, as like if everybody it's listening's like oh yeah sure okay, like yeah. give me a pepsi right. right i'll take a colorated math poetry please what the hell do you want and how do we actually serve that i'll have to talk to the chef about that and so he is just a really deep, unusual thinker. Mm -hmm. He's a very charming individual as well. He's like insouciant, like he's like childlike and simplistic, but in a way that's, that's not about being simple, but it's about being unaware of the bad stuff. Mm. Like he's incredibly creative 
incredibly curious and inquisitive and is a really eloquent and beautiful speaker. But the way he approaches it and his end goal is so mysterious that you wind up being sort of entranced by him, right? Like the people that meet him. So, so he initially was like, I'm not that interested in climbing El Cap. That's too big. And so I go, okay, let's do some smaller things and prove that we can get there. Mm-hmm. So it was a process of proving to ourselves that we were capable of doing something big like El Cap. And when we eventually got to El Cap, we went with Amon McNeely and Cedar Wright. And the four of us went up the wall and it was the first time Sean had been away from his wheelchair since he had been in it for like 15 years, I think at that point. And he left his wheelchair behind and went up into the land above the trees, as Ken Sauls calls it. And really, he describes it too as like, when you're on a big wall, you're all kind of disabled, right? Unless you're like a bird or some kind of you know lizard, you really are disabled by the ability of to use the ropes and the equipment. So it's a slow process generally. And so, and Sean is so contemplative. He would just go deep into the lichen on the wall and imagine this world and inhabit it, right? And then he would come back to our world and share these revelations. Like at one point, Anna McNeely comes over the microphone. He's like, send Sean up. Arg, matey, I've got the best perch for him. So I jug up eventually, clean the pitch, we haul. And Sean is sitting on this tiny little pedestal that his back is upright, his his butt fits on it perfectly, and his legs hang over it. And he's like, dude, look at me. He's like, I fit perfectly on this. He's like, this is like a chair. He's like, El Cap is my wheelchair. He's like, the earth is my wheelchair. And we're all like mouths hanging open, understanding like he's having an experience on this, which is transcending his disability. And we're fostering that, right? So working with him became an instant bridge to working with so many others, right? Mm -hmm. Because we get done climbing El Cap and people are like, hey, I want to climb El Cap or my brother or my friend or I know someone. And then I wound up getting this call in 2007, I want to say, from a guy named DJ Skelton. And he was in the U.S. Exactly. In the army. Right. Suffered serious. Exactly. Yeah. The two of us, along with Malcolm Daly, eventually came in and we started this movement called Paradox Sports, which was about identifying people who can with those who want to. Basically, I want to do it. People gather together and they make it happen. So DJ calls me and He's heavily wounded. He's missing his eye, the palate of his mouth, mobility in an arm and a leg. And he's talking about post-traumatic growth, right? Through that process of being exploded, essentially, he's found a resiliency. He's found a toughness. He's found a set of tools and, and precepts from which to live his life in a strong and meaningful way. And he wants to share that with the world. Right. So we wound up starting this movement, really, which had been started, right? This isn't like recreating the wheel, but it's putting these mutual wheels on, on a similar vehicle to overcome great obstacles. And that became paradox sports. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So your brother, it, it's kind of wild. I mean, you, you, you have this idea that you got hit in the face with a rock. Like this is so traumatic for, 
for our family and for me and obviously for your brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, it's like a pretty amazing story to then turn around and have him become this vehicle to something that I think changed your life in a profound and positive way. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that when Sean became paralyzed and I initially saw it as the most devastating of catastrophes, right? Right. How could my brother who we shared a bunk bed, right? So I shared a room with him. Then there was three other kids in another room and two other kids in another room. And then my parents in their room and they were all like vying for one bathroom, like holding ourselves, rocking back and forth, beating on the door, get out. <laughs> and so Sean would really help me understand and inhabit my world. Right? Mm-hmm. And he was like responsible for getting me into climbing trees and climbing tombstones down in the Fernwood Cemetery, our, our, our idea of open space. And, and he, w- <laughs> he would venture really far from home on his bike, like, like right. to Canada, dude. Like he was gone for days. We didn't know where he was. He called on a payphone from Canada, right? So he, he really represented to me a way of life and ideology that allowed me to, to break that necessary gravitational force of your hometown right and to get out right yeah, i just i have a big smile on my face because i'm like you're like you went to canada i'm like what was he like 11 or something and then i'm thinking like well that's the one nice thing about a giant family like oh where's sean i don't know he's around here somewhere right <laughs> and there was more food at the dinner table too right. like we knew sean was gone and i was secretly like, taking his portion right dude. Exactly. <laughs> I was able to get much stronger so that I could finally fend off my older brothers and keep the shit out of them, dude. Right, right. And so his injury first was negative. And then, of course, you know, through time and right. through an understanding and through that sort of wisdom that you you glean from it, right, it becomes a positive aspect. Right. right. Like kind of like Eric Weimer says that adversity advantage, right? right? Yeah. So he would go on to not only climb you know ascending these ropes but he would go on to be the first sit climber to lead oh really right so he would he can rock up to the crag and get down onto the ground put his rock chaps on his legs rack up and lead a crack and then put himself on rappel wrap down and clean it put you on belay and belay you up and give you advice on how to use your feet right and so here's this paraplegic who can't walk but he can climb Mm -hmm. and he may not be able to use his feet but he can talk to you about footwork right and that's why we chose the name paradox you know a blind man climbing mount everest you know a paraplegic climbing el capitan you know an individual without their arms you know an individual without their legs and it's not what's missing that's important it's what remains that's important right so we decided to create, you know, the organization just to put some structure and some administration around, you know, helping people. And I actually became the executive director of the organization for a few years. I really right. took it from its sort of club infancy into a national prominent organization by creating um, this adaptive climbing manual and then right. starting this adaptive climbing clinics, which we deliver nationwide. Right. Yeah. So it was all about bringing people up to speed and training people. And now adaptive climbing is, is kind of popular. Right? Right. I'm not saying people are like looking to pull an Aaron Ralston and cut their arm off so they can climb harder, but they're definitely- their finger. Okay, maybe just a finger like Tommy <laughs> called. Finger works. I'm looking to just like pull an eyelash out. Does that count as like an amputation? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it actually does count. Sorry, you're not an adaptive climber. Um, but there's, there's the prevalency of it now 
at climbing gyms, which are all over the place, you know, people are creating a, a, an entry in to it as opposed to, you know, highlighting a barrier. You know, you can't. It's creating the bridge, knocking that barrier down and creating the bridge of saying, you can, you're welcome. Come on in. Let's do right, this. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I interviewed uh, uh, Hugh Herr. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a, I think what ended up being a very stressful and awkward interview, but uh, I found out later that that was not unusual. Yeah, interacting with Mister or Doctor Her, I think. Doctor Her, yeah, yeah, Doctor, Doctor, so <laughs> Doctor, Doctor. <laughs> but I mean, one of the things I remember from his talk, and you know, his thing is the 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 prosthetics. He's like super high tech. Is that you know he was just like why, you know, this philosophy of like getting a person back to where they were. He's like you know, fuck that. Let's make it better. Let's go right. further. And mm-hmm. if we have this opportunity, then let's make the, le- in his case, you know, we're talking about prosthetic legs. Sure. Although I'm sure he works with all sorts of that sort of thing, but it's like, let's make them better. You know, and in his climbing, he was like, I'll, you know, I'll give myself six more inches of height. Right. Like, boom, I'm, you know, I can reach that hold I couldn't reach before. And I remember his like, he made these shoes that were really thin so he could yeah. insert the front of his foot, you know, yeah. by inches into a very narrow crack. Right. Where you couldn't put your foot in there, right. but you could put this prosthetic foot in there. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, it just reminds that the paradox philosophy, and, and Malcolm talked quite a bit about it on the show as well. Mm-hmm. Sort of reminded me of that. Of like, and there are silver linings. Yeah. I mean, there are there are positive aspects of this that go beyond of like you know, it's no longer elective challenge for you. Mm-hmm. It's it's involuntary challenge. Like you're going to have to overcome this, right? right? Which you know, like with Eric Weinmayer. You know, he can't see what's going on. So he, he can't see how, you know, that, that like, oh, I wish like when I'm taking people climbing and it's dark, like we go through the night, they calm down yeah. because like they can no longer see what's around them. So it's interesting. Like there can be like positive attributes of this or ways that you can see it in a positive light mm-hmm. that, and oftentimes you'll hear this, like it was a gift, mm-hmm. right? That this allowed me to see the world and see my existence in a way that is much more meaningful as a result. Right. So let's go back to, uh, I guess, like a simpler, uh, almost almost like soft light uh, time. And, and I kind of want to talk about an era in your climbing, but also in the history of climbing, like the Yosemite speed climbing and, and uh, Dean Potter era and all these sorts of things. I think that probably like image-wise – you know, we definitely associate you with as in terms of your own climbing. Can we talk a little bit about like those years in Yosemite that I think in a lot of ways as time goes by will be, you know, sort of eulogized as a as another golden era in, in Yosemite, you know, like the Stone Masters. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, even the even the movie sort of like jumped ahead to the monkeys and all that sort of stuff. Right. So I, I like this word, actually, it's a little cliche, but um, playground. Because of all these climbers that, you know, have come through Yosemite, like it seemed like you and your cohort really made it that. Like it was, you know, the images were just you romping and convorting and like flying up these roots and always sun drenched and always amazing. And, you know, I know California that. California dreaming. Yeah. I mean, and, and I know that, you know, it's it's punctuated by tragedy sure. here and there. But mm-hmm. but still the, the, the image was so talk about like how you got to Yosemite and then well, my, when you started to kind of like open that, I guess that box to say that, wow, we can, we can do some really amazing things here that haven't been done before. 
My my first time in Yosemite was as an employee working for the Yosemite or the Curry Curry Company was what it was called, yeah. And I, I was an employee. I was twenty years old. I was still very much and will always be very much a kid from Philadelphia, but I was much more so because you know this is thirty years ago, and I had done a little bit of climbing in Yellowstone National Park where you know I was really introduced to wildness and wilderness and just an expanse of ideation and like philosophically and like so much more than I thought. Like I had my head so far up my ass as this young person that it's been this process of pulling it out slowly, but surely (laughs) and climbing has been, you know, a lever to help do that. Right. Right. Because if you're not paying attention in climbing, there's a good chance you're going to get hurt or worse. Right. Right. So I came to Yosemite. I saw the walls. Of course, classically you see El Cap and even today I see it and I'm baffled by its immensity. You know, you feel this hush come over you. I described it recently as like seeing a massive statue of like a religious icon, like a Buddha say, Mm -hmm. and you see it and it reminds you of a greater sense of existence, a, a deep spirituality, perhaps it does for me. And so I see this, I'm hushed, I'm silent only for a second, of course. <laughs> and then of course I'm ecstatic and, you know, verbose and going off once again, but I saved all my paychecks. I got a rack of gear. And cause I was, I remember walking through camp forth, little stuff that I got when I was in Yellowstone and I'm like walking through it. I'm like hearing all these voices. It's like this, you know, Babylon, this like the you know, tower of Babel rather. And you know, there's people from all over the world, but no one was taking me climbing. So I saved up my paychecks, bought a rack, I had a rope already and I started taking my friends near deathing, right? Like we would, you know, have these experiences. I remember like taking these horrific whippers and like getting rope burns behind my leg again and again until somebody told me that's because I'm having the rope run behind my leg. And so it was this, you know, initiation, right? Trial by fire, trial by rope burns and contusions and bruises. And then I would go back every year. I've been back every year since I was an employee there in when I was 20. Right. It's a place that like it's like a bungee cord that, you know, I get far from and then whoosh, snap back to it. And here I am again. So I would go year after year. And I remember being an employee there and looking up at half to me like someday and El Cap being like, maybe never. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's too big. How do you eat an elephant? Right. How do you climb El Cap one pitch at a time? Right. One bite at a time. So I remember you know, being there and, and working towards it. And then I would finally climb El Cap. I'd finally climb Half Dome. And it was actually after I met you in Telluride that I right. would go back to Yosemite and then really kind of make my mark, right? Like, mm-hmm. And it was because I had already been climbing for years, right? I, I met Dean and, and all of these people down in Waco Tanks, like Jim Hurst and, you know, all these individuals, these old school you know, iconic climbers, lifers, right? And I've been climbing at Waco Tanks for for multiple seasons. And so I lived in Estes Park for one year. You know, that's probably when I met you as well, right? Right. Estes Park. Mm -hmm. And, you know, living with Steph and Dean and Pete Peacock and Brad Tomlin and like all these individuals, right? And then Dean's like, dude, you got to come out to Yosemite. So I was like, okay, I'm coming out to Yosemite. Like I had a breakup, classic, you know, I'm going to go on a quest drive somewhere, you know, dangerous to like throw yourself at something to, a, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. Right. And so I remember Dean and I went up to the prow on Washington's column and it was the South face on the column and we let it in a pitch. We did it in one pitch. He let it and I seconded behind him. I remember I had like jeans on, I had like my car keys in there. I had my wallet. I had like change. I was like in these like bad shoes and a worse harness and like danger, you know, <laughs> style. And 
we got to the top of the climb and the rope got stuck and Dean's like screamed. I was like, untie from the rope and solo up. And I'm like, what? He's like, listen to me. I'm like, okay. And I untie and I go scrambling up there and he's like, stops his watch and he goes, cool, a new record. And I was like, what? I didn't even know what we were doing, right? I just thought we were like, you know, like on meth or something like that. And we're like speed climbing. I'm like, really? Do we have to snort lines of this stuff? He's like, that's not what we're doing. I'm like, I don't know what it is. And, and then he goes, oh, cool. I've got a new secret weapon and you're it. He's like, it's time to start cleaning up the records. And like you mentioned, it sort of ushered in this new era. Like if you remember like, you know, Steve Bankston or uh, not Steve Bankston, um, uh, Scott Bankston, no, Scott Stowe, Dave Bankston, and Steve Gerberdine. Yes. And okay. they were like this dream team doing the roots in a day. Their thing was just doing them in a under 24 hours. Yeah. Or even just in a push. Okay, that's but right. shooting so for 24. In but, a push, but exactly. You know, just stay up you're right. 36 if yeah. you have to. You're doing whatever. 36, yeah. even 48 hours yeah. in a push. Right? In a push so, was the... And then it was price, like yeah. in a day. And yeah. then it was as fast as humanly possible, right? right? So we ushered in this era of as fast as possible that in a day was great in a push cool but how about the fastest that anybody will ever do it because mm -hmm. to go faster is assured destruction right so we started using these techniques which were very unconventional right like running it out so severely right doing these you know pitches where you have hardly any pro in them i remember doing the sea of dreams with amy o'coin and John Middendorf was filming for Ken Sauls. And I'm leading and he goes, you're not testing anything. You're just clipping into it and high-stepping on it. And it's because we weren't thinking about testing it. Because if you test it, that means you're wasting precious seconds, right. dude. And the reality was it is sort of like time bomb style. But, but the explosion never went off, right. right? It's like dancing through a minefield, you know, and if you're blithe or, you know, carefree enough and you don't worry about the explosion, you listen to the music and dance, right? So we were enthralled with the music, right? Of movement. We were enthralled with the music of the fastest ever. We were enthralled with, you know, being this group of people who didn't seem to care about the consequences, right? It was like the Trump administration. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? We're not going to get political. Sorry about that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. First of all, when are we going to like, when are we going to put Ken Sauls on the rack and get this, this like, whatever 30 year project? The land above the trees. Yeah. Like yeah. whatever it's going to ever become and get this goddamn footage out. He has the deepest archival footage of wall climbing known to mankind. Yeah. yeah. He's been working on a, a, a supposed film. It's his magnum Since opus I've too. known him and yes. I've known him for 30 years. Right. So, so he, almost. I think he has 30 more years of work on this <laughs> well, thing. And it might even have to be a posthumous yeah, release. Yeah, exactly. Right? We well, hopefully like, it's not posthumous to me. Right. Because I want to see it. You want to see it. I, I'd like to see it. I, I mean, I remember leaving all of Lurking Fear in a day as Jose Pereira, mm -hmm. you know, climbed behind us um, as as Jason Singer Smith and Miles Smart did the speed climb on it, you know, mm -hmm. and then Ken shot it all. I mean, Ken really captured that era as well. Like he did a really good job of doing yeah, that. Yeah, but it's it's captured on. I mean, it probably goes fat back to like, like you know, mini cassette 
oh, it cameras. Does. Yeah, then Super through, 8, dude. Yeah, then through all the different forms of like... <laughs> that Super 8 film. Like, it's like the Zabruda film up there, right, dude. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like probably this like technological mess at this point to try to get it all together on something. But, but it would be worth... I know. Going into that soup of different right. formats to figure out yeah. this, again, this grand project that encapsulates yeah. it all. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people who want to get their eyes on Ken Saul's treasure trove of, yeah. of footage. I know. So uh, that's just throwing it out there, Ken. I don't know if you listen to the show, but one of these days we're just going to, we're going to put you in a basement somewhere and make you do it. Yeah. I mean, and that's what he has to do. It's like yeah. gun to the head, yeah. do it or die, right. Ken. Absolutely. Click, click. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Ken might not do it still. And well, we would be bluffing. Let me ask a little bit about your philosophy. You're a guy who, who when opportunity knocks, it seems like you're a yes, I'm going to do this. I'm oh, yeah. Take, I mean, and, and it's been your career. It's been, you know, your literal, like the way you make a living. Sure. You know, projects here, projects there. We'll do the yeah. paradox thing. We'll do this. I'll mm -hmm. be at OR doing the, you know, the OR TV. Right. I'll go yeah. to Alma de Bomb with Eric, like whatever. The I'll side hustle is yeah. my life. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like that's the way you are with climbing too. And that's mm -hmm. why you're, you're just like, you can rattle off these names. If I climb with him, I climb with him, I climb with him. We did this with that. I was there for this. I was like, um, you know, and it's not just you're there, but your talents have brought you there. Right. Also, you're kind of, I feel like you're this mix of like this super deep thinker, but this like, uh, you know, puckish sprite, mm -hmm. if you will, around climbing. Getting into trouble. Yeah. yeah. But you climb with a lot of a lot of people who seemed way more serious about mm -hmm. the records and all these sorts of things than you did. Um, what was your interface with, with like Dean and this kind of serious competition? Because I was always like, well, you know, how seriously is he taking all this sort of stuff when I would... The, the records were being broken and stuff. And and I guess you kind of explained it a little bit. Like that one time you didn't even know we were breaking a record. I, I didn't care. Yeah. Really. I mean, to say I completely didn't care would right. be disingenuous right. because of course I care because you're going after like, well, right. Dean and I broke the record on the nose and it stood for 10 years mm -hmm. at like four hours and 20 minutes. Right. And then we went under four hours and I was like, wow, we can go faster. And then we did, we went under three and a half hours and then it became this sort of strange one upmanship. And then actually we became famous. Right. Right. And fame, changes things, mm -hmm. right? All of a sudden there's something to lose that's not your life right. anymore. It's what people think about your life. And that is a really strange and mysterious force that changes people. So I didn't like it. I mean, I, I like being known for sure. And, and you're right, I'm kind of infamous, which is famous for being bad, yeah. right? I mean, certainly uh, there's, there's, there's parts of that, but as far as like the, like chasing the records and, and wanting to go faster, I just opted out. I was like, done. Right. I'm like, I'm good. I, I like went fast enough. I proved that we could do it. I definitely thought that it would go sub two. It did, right? I knew that it, and, you know, it would go so fast. You did. I, in Hans Florin has a part in his book. Somebody just sent it to me. There's a quote from me saying that Timmy O'Neill thinks it will go sub two. Okay. You know, we talked about that you know, right. when I set the record, which is like, I don't even know when that was like, you know, 2000. So right. like 20 years ago, that's amazing, right? Like, but anyway, as, as far as like, you know, my desire to want to be known as a climber, that's cool. And I call myself a professional climber, but I also like steward. I also like advocate. I also like caregiver. I also like humanitarian, you know, philanthropist, you know, social impact. And that all is really about much more than the act of climbing. It's 
what you feel from the act of climbing and what you learn from the act of climbing and who you are because you've climbed. And that's what I want to talk about. And that's what I want to share. And that's what I try to impart to people, like the concept of mentorship and counsel, right? We all need that. I have many mentors in my life and I am a mentor to many people in my life, but I actually don't talk about climbing too much because people, most people aren't climbers. Most people can't comprehend what it is. And if I try to describe it to them, they would glaze over. Mm-hmm. They're like, you lost me, dude. But, but you know, so when people ask me what I do, you know, there's, there are many things, as you said, but I don't go deeply into the past. And, and like my climbing has never been really about climbing the hardest and climbing the best. I mean, I just had dinner last night and uh, this woman, Madeline, was like, Who, who's your favorite climber? And I'm like, you know, I'll be honest, like, I would say maybe Eric Weinmayer because I just climbed this climb with him and he's a blind climber, right? And he can't even see the climb, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, where she's like, who are these people that you are really inspired by? And yes, I am inspired by the upper end. It's amazing, right? But I'm as as inspired by the middle or lower end, right? For, For where I find satisfaction and my entry into, you know, having dialogue and having experience. Was your sort of bowing out of that sort of thing, you know, a a pretty cut decision or did you just find yourself going to do other things and and sort of moving away from that scene there? Because it definitely felt like, you know, all of a sudden that you you had sort of graduated to doing a bunch of other things. Yeah. I mean, I, I found that what I decided, what I started to do was have a really fun time talking to audiences, right? Right. Like I really had a blast being funny and being irreverent and talking about a lighter side and, you know, using gallows humor to a certain degree, right. Mm -hmm. To, you know, as you know, like gallows humor means you're about to be hanged and you're cracking jokes, right? right? So on your way up to the gallows, you're finding the lighter side in all of it, right? And that helps to relieve stress. That helps to bring um, you know, a sort of a relaxed nature to it, you know, you know, pop the the stress and the tension. But I, I really enjoyed coming at it from a comedic viewpoint to not take it so serious, to not have it be this like chest thumping machismo or like man against the mountain or, you know, this deep brooding thinker you know, in his mountain hideout, getting ready, you know, to do the next challenge. I was just like, God, that sounds so lonely and boring, right? Like I'm one of seven kids, right? It was about, you know, this uproarious, joyous mayhem, right? And so really what I wanted to do was not be exceptional at the top. I wanted to be approachable at the bottom, Mm -hmm. right? And so it was like reaching audiences and talking to people and then really getting into giving back from it because climbing didn't save my life because I wasn't going to die without climbing, but climbing gave me a life that I maybe wasn't going to have without climbing, Yeah, right? Like it really opened my mind and my ability to see the single fleeting, beautiful thing called existence in such an important and temporal, like right now way, Mm -hmm. the way that it is when you're on the sharp end, right? So how do you take that mentality and apply it to everything in life? Right. And so could you, within that context of like being in Yosemite, get away with taking the piss out of your cohort in terms of like their, at least what I know of it, you know, they they took it all pretty seriously. I got into trouble all the time. Okay. I piss people up all the time. 
I mean, there are people that I'm sure strongly dislike me. Hate is a strong word, but but do like have an antipathy to me. Like they're not into Timmy O'Neill because I took the piss, right? right. Because uh, I made fun of. I remember being in the UK and doing a slideshow where I had these huge two dimensional masks that a friend painted for me. Um, and I brought them over to do a talk and it was like, I had to create a little structure to have them on my head so that I could move around and act like these characters. Like, and I remember one time we brought, um, Hillary, excuse me, Mallory, we brought George Herbert Lee Mallory back to life, right? We, I created right. a play with this guy, Jeb Barrier, where I was in the box. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you saw? Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was doing this avant-garde, like typically it was like <laughs> stuffy. Here's my carousels. Next slide. Right. Here's me climbing pitch one, pitch two, pitch. Right. <laughs> so I was like, okay, screw that. I'm going to break that mold. I'm going to shatter it. I'm going to incinerate it. Right. And by doing that, you stand out and you become a target, but you also stand out and become a megaphone. Right. right. So it allowed me to create a platform that was really unusual. I mean, I've always said that my approach to climbing has been very organic. It's been accidental. I didn't know when I set out on a Greyhound bus from Philadelphia to go to Yellowstone that I'd be sitting here on the normal cast talking about a storied 30 years of wild adventures globally, where it's not only been about me, but the impact that I have on the partnership with the rope team and even greater, the partnership that goes into that community of climbing and then greater again, those who are inspired by those stories. That's the through line that I'm looking to create mm -hmm. and, and to continue to create with my ability to be out there living a life on the edge, you know, living a life of, of an exchange of goodness, of kindness, of well-being, of beauty, of raw adventure, you know, risk-taking, all of it, dude. I love it. I mean, part, part of my deal with this is, and one reason I think the positives of the enormous cast is I'm a historian and I didn't really know that I was, but it's like, I've been hanging around, I've been watching and observing and like, you know, commenting on trends and part of, you know, what we're talking about with the Yosemite era was like, I was aware, I mean, I was there for that speed trend, you know, and I was like still, you know, on the, the, the slow and heavy, you know, while, while Gerberding and those guys were moving into this whole speed thing. But there's a, you know, again, going back to the era, like in some ways I feel like it like spun up and sort of like got this kind of meteoric effect for guys like Dean and, and, you know, and Stanley too, who's passed away to where it just like kind of got a little bit, you know, out of their control in a way, or like, it just seemed like it just kept burning for those guys while you, you know, we're talking about you kind of, kind of moving on a little bit. You know, are you conscious of maybe also pulling out because of the risk involved with some of the stuff that you guys were doing? Did you feel the risk that was involved with, like, I guess the pursuit of that maximum value, whether it was just breaking a record, whether it was, was you know, this base jumping stuff or whatever it happened to be? Because mm -hmm. um, I feel like it was in the ether, this feeling of like, wow, this is getting for a lot of people like getting a little bit out of hand. Or am I just like projecting on what was going on? I mean, my my entrance into speed climbing mm -hmm. was by accident in a way. Like I had an invitation. And like you said, and this is something that I really work hard to do is get invited. Yeah. And then once I'm invited, I want to be invited back. So I want to perform at my highest level. I want to be unforgettable. I want to be a key member of the team 
to achieve success, right? right? No matter what it is, right? Whether it's a fundraiser or whether it's a speed climb of El Cap or an epic ascent of Amba de Blom. Or a podcast. Or a podcast <laughs> called Enormocast. Dun, dun, dun. So I'm in, right? right? But at a certain point with the super high risk stuff, it, it was just a natural exit point for me. Like I stopped going super heavy and super run out. But that being said, I still find myself often 50, 75 foot run out. Like last fall, I went and did a, a four pitch ascent of the Stexalithe, mm -hmm. which is 15 pitches, right. right? So that means we're simul climbing and you're exposing yourself to grave risk. But there's a difference in doing it where the fall is likely and the fall is not likely, right. right? So like free soloing, for example, you could free solo something that is so incredibly difficult, right? That a fall is very likely, or you could do something really easy, mm -hmm. like the first flat iron, where, you know, thousands of people solo it a year, right. or it gets thousands of free right. solos a year anyway. So it was like, I, it wasn't that I was purposefully stepping away from the speed climbs, but the partnerships, I was like, okay, we, I moved to the mountains is what happened. Actually, mm -hmm. I took those same skills. Cause you know, Yvonne Chouinard famously said the Yosemite climbers hone their craft and then take it to the world's great ranges. Yeah. So then I did with Nathan Martin. Like I remember Nathan Martin and I worked on that, you know, trip that I mentioned earlier in the normal cast here about John Middendorf filming with Ken Sauls and I was doing Sea of Dreams. Nathan was rigging for Ken and Middendorf. And so Nathan's like, Hey, I'm going to Patagonia. Do you want to go? And I'm like, really? I'd love to go to Patagonia. And we went there and took those techniques and did first ascents on right. these massive peaks and did repeats of routes in like, you know, record time, say. And we did take those skills to the world's great ranges to play that same dangerous game, right? That there is a roulette aspect to it. Whereas if the ball gets into the slot, it doesn't mean you've broken the bank. It means you've broken yourself, right? right. So I guess you age out of that, you know, in a way. And then when my friends started dying, mm -hmm. right, it becomes evident that there's a much greater price to pay right. for this, right? Like when Jose Pereira, he was really the first person that I lost from, from my era of right. people that I was tying in with um, that died while climbing. And that, of course, opened my eyes to, to the really what's at stake. And it becomes incredibly painful, that loss, and you know, very tragic but we keep going, right? We keep going, you know? And I think the same thing with, you know, Dean's death and Stanley's death and, you know, Johnny Cobb and Micah Dash. And, you know, you have these friends that are continually disappearing, right? And, and sometimes people describe it as like a war zone, right? Where we're not at war with another human being, we're at war perhaps with the mountain or with the objective hazards or risk. And there's a death toll to that, that keeps mounting, right? I mean, some of these beautiful individuals, male and female, are snuffed way early, mm -hmm. right? And, and that is saddening and that is tragic. Of course, we don't go there because we can die. Classically, we go there because we feel very alive while mm -hmm. we're there, mm -hmm. right? And we may not be able to pick how we're gonna die, but we can choose how we live, right? right? Well, let me ask you this, uh, and you know, I, I can't remember the last person I asked this, but I know I asked it of of, uh, of Conrad, mm -hmm. you know, as somebody who's 
I think seen as, you know, kind of nowadays this old man of the mountains, you know, and, and this you know, diplomat, right? Yeah, yeah. And lived through, you know, so cause much. I think we associate, I mean, we associate loss of climbers. I think a lot of times with alpinism and with the, in the, in the big mountains. But when I was, you know, and we talked on the phone a little bit about this before we, we got here, but mm -hmm. you know, I started thinking about you and again, it's partially the web of connections that you have. Again, you're yes to climbing with this person and yes to climbing with that person. And then you've got this wide range and all of a sudden it's just a matter of statistics. You've got, I think, a, a sort of like dealt with loss on a level that I don't think a lot of other just sort of rock climbing kind of guys have. Mm -hmm. So it got, got me starting to think about that. I know you also lost your mother recently. Yeah. Do you have a way or uh, advice or anything else of how to deal with and sort of compartmentalize the loss that you felt within climbing? Well, you mentioned my mom's death right? and, and my mom died at the end of December. So okay. just, you know, like five, six weeks ago, a month ago, really okay. like a month ago. And that was a, a, a long going and ongoing rather chronic illness. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a surprise. In fact, um, we knew that it was imminent. Well, she must've been a super mom to do. She was incredible. You. She was incredible. I mean, yeah. we drove her crazy because <laughs> right. there wasn't a week that went by when we weren't either in the hospital or in arrested in some right. precinct. She would answer the phone and be like, which emergency room, right. which cop shop am I coming right, to? Right. Who is it? Which one? How bad? And then she would go and either have to like take us out of jail, like for being arrested for like petty stuff, like breaking and entering or, you know, petty vandalism right. or public drunkenness, you know, mm -hmm. kind of classic, you know, Irish Catholic, Philadelphia stuff, or, you know, major medical issues, you know, mm -hmm. including your brother. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that was ongoing for her. But my brother, Sean, said this incredible thing uh, at, at her funeral where he said he was hit by a car when he was young. And he was in a coma. He was near death. He was really just destroyed by this vehicle on his bike. A guy hit him accidentally. And when he was better enough to ride a bike again, she bought him a new bike. So he knew that she believed in his ability to overcome it. Mm. And she said, get back on this thing and keep riding because it brings you so much joy. Right. So she was absolutely a survivor. She, she taught us very well how to be kind, how to be warm, how to be loving, how to be engaged and how to go for it in life. And then she set us free too. Right. But, but her death, um, last, the end of last year was the heaviest death I've dealt with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. I mean, I, I didn't realize how profound the maternal root runs. Right. I mean, I was thinking about it. It was a, a few, it was like a week ago and I was having a super severe crying jag and I'm, you know, just bawling away and crying so hard. And I'm with Sarah and I'm like, like apologizing. And she's like, don't worry about it. And I'm like, you know, but it's so deep and I, and I can't understand why it's so deep for me. Like, why is it that this death of all the deaths that I've experienced, which has been so many, and so many very sad ones that are like bring me like deep s sadness and, and deep sense of loss. Like, what is it about this one? And then I, it got me thinking that, you know, I've done so many road trips with these people and we've had these incredible experiences over years in some cases. And with my mom, I realized that 
I was on my original road trip with her, you know, gestation, the first nine months, right? We're with her inside her and it creates this bond. And I was like, oh, I get it. It's because she's my longest friend that I've ever had. And she's been with me since the beginning. And she has been this force that I didn't even realize I was utilizing, like gravity. You know, it turned off and I became untethered, right? So it's like this really beautiful and powerful and mysterious force that allows you to really go deep with life. Like it really lets you face it, right? And come up against it. And I realized that climbing and this life of risk, not because you can die, but almost because you will someday, right? That you don't face away from it, but face towards it. So through her death, most recently, it made me realize that no matter what the advice you may get, it will be your own experience. Mm-hmm. It will be a new and profound experience and that it is best felt as strongly and as, and as, you know, authentically and in the moment as possible. And, you know, you, you talk with people, you, you seek advice, you seek counsel, you seek love. In fact, the reason we're, I'm on the Enormal cast finally is in large part because Sarah was like, you need to go to outdoor retailer. You need to go be around people that know you and love you and support you and recognize you for like all of the goodness that is inherently in you and all of the relationships that you've crafted over the years. And, you know, the, this really important one that I'm so baffled by, like it's so wild and mysterious, this unexpected one of my mom's loss in that classic thing that the absence of someone reminds you of the presence of those that are still there. So she's like, get to outdoor retailer, buy a ticket, get a badge, go see, you know, Patagonia, Osprey, Cliff, whatever, but go see the people Mm -hmm. that work for those brands, you know, go live the purpose that really drives you. And dude, I've spent the last two days almost standing in one place and turning the degrees of the compass and hugging people who are like, Timmy, hey dude, so good to see you. And then you sit down and you're reminded that life is a very powerful and meaningful exchange between people. Yes, it occurs in beautiful places. Yes, it involves great purpose. But without the people, why are we doing it? Why are we here, right? And so coming here to be at Outdoor Retailer has just been fantastic for the grieving process. Mm. Because I think that's what we want, right? That's why when we have a wake or you, you have a viewing and you have the funeral, everybody comes together to not only celebrate what is gone, but as importantly, to celebrate what remains. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Timmy for sitting down. I hope you're getting well, man. I hope you're getting well. I feel like Timmy has the tools to get well. 
And thanks for sticking around for 10 years. Are there folks out there that listened to number one the week it came out and are still listening? Man, we should go on a cruise or something. Minus, you know, all the viral garbage that goes on on cruises. And then let's not go on a cruise. Let's just go climbing. We'll have a little meetup. Anyway, take care of each other out there. All colors, classes, everybody. And remember, when I say check your knot, I literally mean that. Because having a knot fail is really a dumb way to go. But it also means a lot more. It means look out for each other. Don't forget to check your knots. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. There is no way for a citizen of a republic to abdicate his responsibilities.